Good morning. My name is Taylor Sutton. I'm one of the pastors here at Zionsville Fellowship. I would invite you now to turn with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. A helpful trick that I've noticed is if you can find Ezekiel, which is the last long major prophet, Joel is not too far to the right. So if that if that's of any help to you, you can use that. We're in Joel chapter 2 this morning, and we will be starting today in verse 18. Joel 2, 18 to 32. Let's read God's word together. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you, And drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. 
and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is God's word. Let's pray now. Father, we give you this time. We thank you for your word that has sounded forth even in these last moments. And we pray now as we consider it closely that you would empower us, empower me as I speak, empower my friends here as they listen. May we hear your voice. May we see you as you are, see ourselves as we are, and be changed, drawn near to us by your spirit in this time. We pray all these things through Jesus. Amen. His name was Ernesto Bisanti. Ernesto Bisanti. And all he wanted to do was start a business, a furniture factory to be exact. But things were not always that simple in Palermo, Italy in 1986. Within A short time of opening his factory, Mr. Basanti was paid a visit by a representative of the Cosa Nostra, the infamous mafia group from the island of Sicily, where Palermo is. And the demand was made for $6,000 a year to be paid out in two installments. Uh, it's well known that the extortion of protection money is uh, one of the hallmarks of organized crime, of the mafia in particular. And it's an extortion that is built on the threat of violence. If you pay up, we'll leave your store alone, we'll leave your business alone. If you don't pay up, we will make sure that you suffer the consequences. This is obviously a revenue generator for the mafia, but it's also a form of control. This is how Ernesto Bisanti described it after paying protection money for two decades. In their system, he says, it's not important how much you pay, it's important that you pay. It's a form of submission. Here's a question for you. Is God like the mafia, offering nothing more than protection from his own threats of violence? Is that what the God of the Bible is really like? Think about the situation of Joel's listeners. They had experienced a devastating plague, a locust invasion, and then they were told that worse things were coming unless they turned back to God with all their hearts. And in my mind, that raises the question, how are they supposed to trust the same God who just decimated their lives? To put it in more general terms, how are we going to trust the God who brings both the ruin and the restoration. How do we do that? How do we trust a God like this? Our passage helps us trust God by showing us who he really is, what he's really 
like. Joel 2, 18 through 32 shows us this, that only a God who has what it takes to accomplish perfect justice will also have what it takes to accomplish total restoration. Let me say that again. Only a God, only a God who has what it takes to bring about perfect justice will also have what it takes to bring about total restoration. And in the end, only a God like that is worth trusting. We see this reality in four different ways, four truths about God that our passage directs our attention to. The first one is this, that God has the compassion to care about people who don't deserve it. God has the compassion to care about people who don't deserve it. We see this in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So this passage begins with statements about God's heart, about God's core disposition towards us. And just like we saw last week, this is a significant way in which God comforts his people. But we also need to remember what we saw last week from the first chapter and a half of Joel about the nature of suffering. Recall that Today's suffering, my suffering today, is not necessarily direct punishment for a particular sin. We see that in a number of places in Scripture. But it remains the case that suffering in general is the result of sin in general. And just as importantly, suffering is always a warning Sign, an alarm bell alerting us to the fact that a day of reckoning for our sin is coming. Suffering is always both of those things. So that means, even at the beginning, even as we just drop into this passage, we have to remember that when God declares that a day of judgment is coming, that is not the threat of a bully. That is the assured arrival of perfect justice. But, thankfully, the God of perfect justice is not devoid of mercy. So we look at verse 18, we see these two realities. That God is jealous for his land, which means that he is stirred up to fight for his land. There's a sense of righteous indignation, get this, about the very destruction that God himself has sent upon the land. God is stirred up to do something about the devastation. And second, look at the the last half of verse 18. He had pity on his people. That's talking about compassion. God's capacity to be moved to do something for people who are hurting even when, as in this case, even when their hurting is their own 
fault. God is moved to compassion. The Bible says in so many different ways that God is sovereign. God rules over everything that happens. But we must never take that to mean that God is emotionally flattened towards all that happens. As if God responds the same internally to everything that he decrees. Just to give one example, Ezekiel 18 says that God does not delight. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even though he does, in fact, decree that the wicked, unless they repent, will be punished. But he he feels differently about that than he does about their repentance. Parents, you, you know something of this. Parenting involves both administering discipline and giving Christmas presents. In the course of parenting your kids, you do both of those things, but doing discipline causes you pain, and giving gifts brings you delight. Kids, your parents' disciplining of you would be unbearable if you didn't know that they truly cared about your well-being, that they were genuinely pursuing your good. And so one of the reasons that we can trust God is that we see he has a heart of compassion for us. He has the the compassion to care about people who don't deserve it. That's the first thing we see. The second thing is this, that God has the authority to make all things new. God has the authority to make all things new. New, And this we see in verse 19 all the way to verse 27. God has the authority to make all things new. Look at verse 19. The Lord answered and said to his people. So this is, this is significant. Up until this point, God has been described in the third person. This is what God says. Here God will now speak directly saying what he will do. I will do this. I will do that. So listen to what he begins with in verse 19. Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. This is restoration. This is redemption. Where there had previously been famine, there will now be abundance. Where there was previously shame because of their suffering, there will now be honor. And where there was a a strain in their relationship with God, there will now be a renewed richness of communion with God. Look at verse 27 where we see this last idea. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. Everything is restored. Now you might think, as God makes these promises, you might think that it would undermine his credibility that he was the one who brought about the devastation that makes the restoration necessary. But did you notice that God brings up the fact that he brought about the devastation. Look at verse 25. 
I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. God is not embarrassed to remind them that he brought this about because, among other reasons, it's because it's his army that he has the ability to call it off. It's because the devastation is his just decree that he has the authority to relent. And it would have been kind enough for God merely to relent, to halt the damage. But the beautiful reality of this section is that God does not merely halt, but he restores. He, he undoes the devastation. Now, I think this raises an important question. Uh, how does this relate to us? What does this have to do with us? It re- really, it's a question about how do these particular promises apply to you and I today? And I want to try to briefly answer that by identifying two ways in which these promises do not apply. Two mistakes that we can make in trying to move from these promises to our life today. First thing we want to avoid doing is to lock up these promises in history so that they have no abiding significance for us. It would be a mistake, I believe, to say God kept this promise one time in the past never to be repeated again. And so now its relevance for us is merely serving as a record of what God did back then. That is part of what happened. The reason I say that would be a mistake is that the way God's promises typically work in the Bible and especially in the prophets is they have layers of fulfillment. In other words, God makes a promise and he will often keep the promise in an initial way, but he's not finished yet. God continues to keep the promise in new and expanding and even surprising ways. So I I think it would be a mistake to lock up these promises in history and say, God kept these promises once, and that's it. But on the other hand, it would also be a mistake to divorce the promises from history so as to import them into my biography without modification. It would be a mistake to look at verse 25 and say, everything I lose through suffering will be given back to me in this life every time. That's not promised here. These are promises for the people of God, and they find their fulfillment in the great movements of redemptive history. So in this case, uh, God most definitely kept this promise in some sense within Joel's lifetime to to bring about restoration, to to bring an end to the devastation. But there's a sense in which God kept this promise even more so when the exiles returned from that greater devastation. 
And there's a, a sense in which God kept this promise even more when Jesus came. And there's a sense in which the fulfillment of these promises will be filled up to the brim when Jesus returns and truly makes all things new. So, we've seen so far in verse 18 that God has the compassion to care about people like us who don't deserve it. In verses 19 through 27, we've seen that God has the authority to make all things new. And third, we now see that God has the power to make his people new. God has the power to make his people new. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Verse 29. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is a theme we see in a number of different prophets in the Old Testament, that on the last day, in the last days, there will be a great outpouring of God's spirit on God's people. And it's interesting that different prophets emphasize different effects that this will have. Joel emphasizes two things in particular about the outpouring of God's Spirit. Joel's first emphasis is on the fact that when God's Spirit is poured out, it will enable his people to experience revelation from God and proclaim it to others, which was traditionally the exclusive domain of the prophets. And that leads to the second emphasis that Joel Makes, which is that this outpouring of the Spirit will be indiscriminate on the people of God. It will, it will be everybody, regardless of social status. In the novel, The Lord of the Flies, you have this interesting situation where these kids find themselves stranded on an island... And it's as if they have a chance to, to remake civilization. No adults, no institutions, no traditions, no history, just, just humanity with a fresh slate. And what happens? They, they recreate all the violence and savagery of the world outside the island. As we think about these sections of Joel chapter 2, if God restored all things but left us unchanged, we would very quickly mess everything up. So we need a God who not only has the authority to make all things new, but who has the power to make us new, to change us from the inside. And Joel 2, 28 and 29 declares that he has that power. He has the compassion to care about those who don't deserve it. He has the authority to make all things new. He has the, the power to make us new. And fourth, he has the faithfulness to rescue his people from the final day of judgment. 
He has the faithfulness to rescue his people from the final day of judgment. Look at the last several verses, verses 30 through 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So we get this description once again of not just a day of the Lord, of which there are numerous, ones, but this is the day of the Lord. This is the final reckoning. This is when all the accounts are settled, when all the outstanding debts owed to God are called in, when all the evil and the injustice and the oppression and the dishonor to God's name is dealt with. This is the great and awesome day of the Lord. But notice what Joel also draws our attention to in verse 32. It's that those who call on the Lord's name will be saved. To call on the Lord's name simply means to trust in him for salvation. It is another way of of talking about faith. Resting the weight of your whole person on God to save you. And the, the, the promise here is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this, this passage concludes with a striking picture of God's fierce justice engulfing the world, but at the same time, those that trust in God being sheltered, protected, saved, from that same fierce justice. Now, I think many people today find this implausible, not so much because they can't understand the idea of a God who wants to rescue, but because it seems implausible that God would actually have this kind of fierce punishment in store for the world. But, perhaps we could ask this question. How can we trust God to save anyone if he fails to execute justice? What kind of salvation would that even be? You see, the same faithfulness that guarantees perfect justice is the faithfulness that also guarantees the salvation of God's people. Maybe there's another stumbling block here for for many of us and many of our, our friends and neighbors, which is that we just have a hard time believing that I deserve divine judgment. That my imperfections, real as they may be, really call for cosmic 
judgment. But by what standards do we make that determination? Can you really have justice in a world where every individual is uh, his own judge and jury? Uh, A number of years ago, uh, my wife and I went to file our taxes, and we were still fairly new at this. We had just been married a few years before, and like many people our age and in our income bracket, we just assumed we would be getting a nice refund when we filed our taxes. It, It was as if, not that we would have said it quite like this, but it was as if you file your taxes so that you can get a refund. It's just automatic. But what we discovered is that one of our employers had set up our withholdings in such a way that we significantly underpaid our taxes. So all throughout the year, we had been underpaying what we owed. And so when the time came to settle accounts with the government, we owed thousands of dollars. Filing your taxes does not automatically earn you a refund. And dying does not qualify you for heaven. Simply showing up at the great day of judgment does not guarantee your pardon. There is a day coming when all accounts will be settled. And what Joel 2 is saying to us is it will not do you any good to show up for that day saying, I thought I did a pretty good job. It won't help you to show up for that day and say, there were a lot of people worse than me. Joel 2 is saying the only way to show up for that day and make it through is to show up resting on God, trusting in him to save you. Several centuries after this was first written, a man named Peter stood up in Jerusalem and quoted these words. Now, this was notable for a few reasons. One, this was notable because Peter was speaking to a city that had just recently crucified Jesus, his friend, his mentor, his teacher. This was also notable because Peter quoted from our passage, from this last section of Joel 2, and said that God had kept these promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, on that cross, just a few weeks before Peter spoke those words and quoted this passage, on the cross, Jesus endured the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, in advance, in in the middle of history. He he absorbed the judgment. And in his resurrection, he he was vindicated. He, He came through on the other side so that All who take refuge in him, all who trust in him, all who call upon his name 
will be sheltered in him when the day of the Lord comes. Jesus on the cross paid the mountain of debt that each of us has accrued. And apart from him, are still accruing with each passing day. Only a God who has what it takes to accomplish perfect justice will also have what it takes to accomplish total restoration. His mercy, his authority, his power, his faithfulness. These are among the reasons why we can trust him. Even when suffering comes. And if you think about justice and restoration. It it makes sense that we would have to count on God for both. Because you can't really separate them. You wouldn't actually want to separate them. Restoration without justice is a fiction. It's no restoration at all. But justice without restoration is a wasteland. There there would be nothing left. And so we have instead the great promise of a God who is strong enough and faithful enough and kind enough to do both. To bring justice but to make a way for even those who deserve the the sharp punishment of his justice to be spared. So, what that means for us, among other things, is that if you want to endure today's suffering, if you want to prepare for tomorrow's suffering, And if you want to be ready for the great day when all accounts will be settled, the solution is the same. Trust in Jesus. Take refuge in Christ. Take refuge in his heart of compassion. Take refuge in his person, bringing together God and humanity. Take refuge in his work which has created a safe and sturdy refuge for all. Father, we are sobered to remember that even though we can sometimes approach you flippantly and casually, even with a sense of entitlement, when we pray to you, we are praying to the God who commands the destructive armies of judgment. We we are talking to the one who will hold every word accountable. Every movement of our hearts. And so we we are humbled, we are sobered, and, and we are also reminded to our unspeakable relief that you have also made a way. That you have made a way for us to come back to you. You have made a way for us to be spared the punishment that we deserve. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to trust you 
when things are hard. Help us to trust you when our sins accuse us. Help us to begin enjoying, even in the midst of death, even in the midst of our mortality, may we begin to enjoy this restoration that has dawned in your Son. We lift up this prayer to you, not because we deserve to be heard, but because Jesus Christ has died and risen and intercedes for us at your right hand. Amen.